0: You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Today's reading comes from Romans 9, verses 6 to 29. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor, because they are his descendants, are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father, Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the same right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath, And make his power known bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory even us whom he also called not only from the jews but also from the gentiles as he says in hosea i will call them my people who are not my people And I will call her my loved one, who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites be like sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah.
1: Uh, Well, brothers and sisters, uh, it's good to be together, uh, albeit from my home this week. Uh, Would you please pray with me uh, as we come and look at this next part of Romans chapter nine? Let's pray together. Oh, our Father, we um, we just ask that you would give us all the help that we need the grace that we need. Uh, Father, please uh, help me uh, to uh, unpack this part of your word faithfully and clearly uh, and in a way that um, captures our hearts and our minds. And I pray, Father, for each one who's listening. I pray that they would uh, listen uh, as if they are receiving your very words, uh, that they would humbly listen, that they would trust your word uh, and be moulded and shaped by your word for the glory of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, I wonder what do you think it is that makes someone a Christian. What is it that makes someone a Christian? And why is it that one person can grow up in the church and even stay in the church for their entire life, experiencing all the privileges that come from that, and still not become a Christian? but still not to come to saving faith in Jesus. And another person can read the Bible by themselves for the very first time, trust in Jesus straight away, and faithfully follow Jesus for the rest of their life. What's with that difference between people? Why is it that this person believes and this person doesn't? What is it that makes someone a Christian? It's related to the question that Paul was grappling with in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. Right? Why hasn't all Israel believed? And you remember in those verses that we looked at last week, Paul was lamenting the fact that most of his fellow Jews had rejected Christ, right? that they were cursed and cut off from Christ, and despite the fact that they'd enjoyed immense religious privileges were right, receiving all the promises of God so surely that means God's promises to, uh, that God has been unfaithful to his promises, right? God's word to Israel has failed. But what we see in today's passage is that God's word has not failed because he is keeping his word by freely choosing to make Christians wherever and whenever he wants. But God's word has not failed because he's keeping his word by freely choosing to make Christians wherever and whenever he wants. So first, let's look at verses uh, 6 to 13, uh, where we see that God is not unfaithful to his promises. Uh, Paul states his main point right up front. Right, You see it there in the first part of verse 6. Take a look at verse 6. Paul says, it is not as though God's word had failed. And then Paul gives us two kind of arguments to support his main point. First, he says in verse 6, four, right, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And that is, not all who are physically descended from Israel are a part of what you might call the true Israel, the, the, the spiritual Israel. But according to Paul, that there's this true or spiritual Israel, that they kind of exist within physical Israel. Paul reiterates that point in verse 7 by saying, Nor, because they are his descendants, are they all Abraham's children. Not all who are physically descendants of Abraham are actually children of Abraham, Paul says. Then Paul gives two examples from the Old Testament to justify the claim that he's just made. The first example in verse 7 is he points out that out of Abraham's own sons, God freely chose Isaac to be the child of his promise and not Ishmael. Paul shows that in the rest of verse 7 by quoting Genesis 21 verse 12, where God said to Abraham, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Maybe you can see what Paul's saying. He's saying to us, uh, look a little bit more carefully at God's promises. Yes, God promised to to bless Abraham's descendants. Genesis 12, uh, verses 1 to 3. Uh, But it's clear in Genesis that Abraham had two sons, right? Isaac and Ishmael, uh, both of them being Abraham's physical descendants, uh, but God named Isaac as Abraham's spiritual descendant. So Paul concludes in verse eight, in other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, uh, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. But only Isaac was regarded by God as an heir of his promises, a recipient of his promises. Because only Isaac was regarded by God as a child of his promises. Because take a look at verse 9. This was how the promise was stated, Paul said. At the appointed time, God said, I will return and Sarah will have a son. That's a quote from Genesis 18, verses 10 and 14. The point being that Ishmael was a child of, uh, of the flesh, right? a child uh, um, kind of produced by human effort, born to Hagar, Abraham's slave. Uh, in contrast, Isaac was a child of God's promise, uh, a child uh, of God's amazing grace, uh, a child miraculously born to Sarah, Abraham's wife. So that's the first example. God freely chose Isaac and not Ishmael. But after that example, uh, Paul might have been anticipating someone saying, well, well of course God chose Isaac. But Ishmael, uh, uh, um, uh, Ishmael's mother Hagar wasn't even an Israelite. So in verses 10 to 13, Paul speaks about Isaac's sons. And he shows that God freely chose Jacob as the child of his promise and not Esau. Take a look at verse 10. Paul says there, uh, not only that, uh, but Rebecca's children were conceived and at the same time by our father Isaac. Right? So, so, Rebecca, Paul says, was an Israelite, right? not like Hagar. And as twins, both her sons were conceived at exactly the same time by their Israelite father Isaac. They're exactly the same. Yet, yeah, look at verses 11 and 12. Before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, uh, not by works, but by him who calls, uh, Rebecca was told the older will serve the younger. That's a quote from Genesis 25, verse 23. God's telling Rebecca that Esau, her older son, uh, will serve Jacob, her younger son. But why? Look at verse 11, it makes it clear that the only reason was God's purpose in election. God freely chose Jacob. Not because of anything about Jacob, just because that was God's choice. Paul emphasises that by saying that God made this choice when? Well, before the twins were even born. That's when he chose Jacob. God's choice had nothing to do with with their spiritual or moral performance. Take a look. Uh, It says, uh, the choice happened before they had done anything good or bad. Now, some people say, well, well, maybe God chose Jacob because he kind of looked into the future and saw that that Jacob was more likely to trust in him. So he chose Jacob. Uh, But that implies that that God chose Jacob because uh, of a bit of a work that Jacob was going to do. Right, he was going to trust in God. Uh, but verse 12 says God's choice was not by works, uh, but by him who calls. Uh, God freely chose Jacob uh, and not Esau. Uh, Paul drives that home in verse 13 by quoting Malachi 1 verses 2 and 3. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, maybe you remember that in Luke 14, verse 26, Jesus told his disciples that they had to hate their father and mother to follow him. Right? Clearly, Jesus didn't have in mind the, the feeling of hate that we sometimes experience, right? because elsewhere he said that we have to honour our parents. Right? Well, what, you, what Jesus did mean by this language of hate uh, well, was that faced with the choice, we have to freely choose him over our parents. But if you want to be a follower of Jesus, he must be your first love. And likewise, Paul's saying in here here in Romans 9, that God freely chose Jacob over Esau. Well, not because of anything special about Jacob, simply because Jacob was his choice. So what is it that makes someone a Christian? Paul's answer, at least in verses 6 to 13, is that it's God. It's God who freely chooses to make some people Christians and not others. Some of you might say, well, doesn't that mean God's choice is arbitrary? Well, Like God's up in heaven playing some sort of cosmic game of duck-duck-goose. Well, not at all, right? But Paul's not saying that the God has no reasons for, for choosing one person and not the other. He's just saying that whatever reasons, God does, whatever reasons God does have are not found in us, in you. That's also where we can't think we're better than anyone else. Others might say, well, well why do you have to insist on this whole doctrine of election? But yeah, it just causes so many problems. How do I get that. There can be real some real issues to work through with this doctrine. But the reality is that rejecting this doctrine of election causes way more problems than accepting it. The biggest problem being that it risks kind of compromising the message of the gospel. The good news are that we are saved by God's grace and not by our works. Because if the difference between you as a Christian and the person who's not a Christian is that you were somehow more humble or open or, or, or spiritually receptive to the gospel, in the end what you're saying is, I'm a Christian because of something in me. But that's salvation by works, isn't it? Right. We believe in salvation by grace. And one part of that grace is believing that God has freely chosen uh, to make some people Christians and not others. Right? It's a gift of His grace. Uh, so God isn't unfaithful to His promises, Paul says, because He's always freely chosen to, to make some people members of His people and not others. Uh, so you say, well, well, God might not be unfaithful, uh, but He is unjust. How unjust of God to, to choose some people but not all people. Paul anticipates that objection I'd say in verses 14 to 18. So he says in those verses, God is not unjust to show mercy to some people and harden others. First in verses 14 to 16, Paul says, God is free to show mercy to some people and not others as he did in verse 6, Paul starts in verse 14, if you have a look there, uh, really with his conclusion. Uh, He says, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all, Paul says. And once again, Paul explains his conclusion uh, by turning to an example from the Old Testament. Uh, This time, it's Moses. Uh, And the context of this example uh, is the horrible episode of Israel worshipping the golden calf at Mount Sinai. You should read it all later on, Exodus 32 to 34. Why does Paul pick this precise example? I think it's because it proves that all Israel did not deserve to be in relationship with God, that they did not deserve God's mercy. What they deserved from God was his judgment. You see, after Israel had turned away from God to worship their golden calf, in Exodus 32, verse 28, we see that God brought a terrible judgment upon Israel. Right? 3,000 Israelites were killed. And Then, in Exodus 33, verses 15 and 16, Moses pleads with God to keep journeying with Israel through the wilderness, right? in his divine, glorious presence. The presence that Paul mentioned in Romans 9, verse 4. In fact, in Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses said to God, Now show me your glory. And in the very next verse, Exodus 33, verse 19, God makes the declaration that Paul quotes in verse 15. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I... I have compassion. And then in the rest of Exodus 33, God restores his covenant with Israel and continues journeying with Israel through the wilderness. You see, Paul's point in quoting from this story is not that we should be troubled by the fact that God didn't show mercy to all the Israelites. but His point is that we should be amazed that God showed mercy to any of the Israelites They all deserved God's judgment. So Paul concludes in verse 16 uh, that God's sovereign choice does not depend on human desire. God doesn't choose people to be his own, but because uh, of what they want or will or decide. Nor does God's choice, Paul says, uh, depend on human effort. Literally, on the one who runs. Which is to say that the, the God doesn't choose people, but because of what they do or how hard they work. But God's choice to, God's choice depends exclusively on His mercy, right? But because no one deserves to be chosen. And this is why God's free mercy to some and not others can never be said to be unjust. Because to say that something's unjust is to presume that God somehow owed us better than this. But God didn't owe us better, did he? I mean, if God gave us what we were owed, what we deserved, what was just, then none of us would receive mercy. If God doesn't owe anyone salvation, which he doesn't, then he's free to mercifully give salvation to whoever he chooses. That's Paul's point in these verses. God is free to show mercy to some people and not others. That's not unjust. So, verses 17 and 18, God is also free to harden some people and not others. Already in verse 17, Paul goes back from Moses in Exodus 32 and 34 to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 9, where after the seventh plague, you might remember this, God said to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Perhaps you remember that in Romans 2, verse 5, uh, Paul told us about how God is extremely patient uh, with people who, spiritually speaking, have hard and stubborn hearts. That's what we see with Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. right? God God doesn't strike Pharaoh down straight away. He takes ages before he brings his judgment. Why? That's what Paul's talking about here. Well, first Paul says it was so that God might display his power in Pharaoh. Through Pharaoh's extended hardness of heart, God brought about an even more dramatic display of his power. And second, Paul says, it was so that God's name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So so that people from all around the world might come to see the glory and greatness of God. And that's what's happened, right? But because God hardened Pharaoh's heart, Exodus 5 to 15 have become a spectacular display of God's glory, a display that is remembered around the world to this day. That's what you might say, but is that really fair of God to harden people's hearts? Well, we've got to remember first that just because God hardened someone's heart now or for a time, it doesn't mean they're going to be hardened forever. I'm sure that that was the case with Pharaoh, but not with everyone. We'll see that in chapter 11 with the people of Israel. And we've also got to remember that if you really want what is fair, then God would have to harden everyone's heart. That's what we deserve. It's what Pharaoh deserved. In fact, if you cast your mind back to Exodus 4-14, to you will remember that sometimes it talks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, and at other times it talks about Pharaoh hardening his own heart. The point being that it's not like Pharaoh was somehow spiritually good, or innocent, or even neutral, and God came along and hardened his heart. No, that's not how it was. But Pharaoh was already hard-hearted and stubborn towards God. Right now, as Romans 1:18 to 3, verse 20 says, all of us are by default. So God sovereignly chose to solidify Pharaoh's hard heart, so that he could display his power and glory. So in verse 18, Paul wraps this section up by saying, Therefore, God has mercy on whom He wants to have mercy, and He hardens whom He wants to harden. In His sovereign choice, God is free to show mercy to some and to harden others, and He does both to display His glory. God is not unjust to show mercy to some people and to harden others. Third, uh, verses 19 to 23 God is not unfair to judge us for our sinful hard hearts. In verse 19, you'll see there, Paul anticipates another objection that someone might have. One of you will say to me, Paul says, then why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? You see the objection. If it was God who hardened Pharaoh's heart, isn't it a little bit unfair of God to blame Pharaoh? But how's Pharaoh supposed to resist God's will? So in verses 20 to 23, Paul answers that objection. First, in verses 20 and 21, Paul says, well, God is our maker. So he has the right to make us for whatever purpose he wills. Take a look at verse 20. Paul says there, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Now, talk back there isn't about humbly asking God your genuine questions. That's fine. Talk back here is about proudly calling into question God's wisdom. And Paul says, who are you, a human being, to do that, to to, to talk back to God? God is creator and you are creature. God is infinite and you are finite. God is all-knowing and you've got such limited knowledge. God is all-powerful, and you have such limited power. Who are you, a human being, Paul says, to talk back to God? And then he quotes Isaiah 29, verse 16, right, saying, Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? In the original context, this is Isaiah rebuking the people of Judah for arrogantly thinking that they're the ones who can shape and mould the events of history, right? Like a a potter moulds their clay. But Isaiah says, no. It's God who's the potter, right? It's God who is forming things. You're just the clay who's being formed, So in verse 21, Paul applies that, and he says that as the potter, God has the right to make out of the same lump of clay, right? That that same lump is a picture of all human beings, all of humanity. So God makes out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some pottery for common purposes. Literally, some pottery for honour and some pottery for dishonour. You see Paul's argument, As the sovereign creator over all, God has the right to to make some people for honour, that is, uh, the people who is chosen to receive mercy uh, and eternal life. And uh, he also has the right uh, to make some people for dishonour. That's the people who will receive hardening and eternal judgment. God has that right because there's an inextricable link between creation and judgment. but right? Even my kids get that. Right? If they've built something out of Lego, they see it as their sovereign right to critique it, to judge it, even to destroy it if they see fit. Why? Because they made it. Right? That's Paul's point here. Right? And he continues that metaphor in verses 22 and 23, where, where he says that God has the right... To make some people for destruction, so that he can display the riches of his glory to his people. I Read from verse 22. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory. Well, why don't you look back again at verse 17? Right? Consider Pharaoh. Why is it that God chose to carry out uh, his plans in the book of Exodus so slowly? Right? As Paul says in verse 22, Why did God bear Pharaoh with such great patience, like right? the object of his wrath prepared for destruction? Why didn't God just kind of blow Pharaoh out of the water straight away? You see, the, the question Paul's asking, he's not asking, why does God judge sinful and hard-hearted people? Why do, he didn't knows those people deserve judgment. It's, why doesn't God judge people like that more quickly? Why is he so patient? And Paul gives us two reasons in verses 22 and 23. First, in verse 22, uh, Paul says God is so patient with hard-hearted sinners, uh, the objects of his wrath, uh, because he's wanting to show his wrath and make his power known to them. Right? This is the same idea as verse 17. right? God judges hard-hearted sinners like Pharaoh so slowly, uh, at least in part, because it gives him the chance uh, to put on display the fullness of his wrath towards them uh, and to make known his power over them. So thinking back to the objection in verse 19, it's clear that these people cannot blame God. and It's clear that it is right for God to blame them because they are objects of wrath, objects that are fit for God's wrath. Right? Why? Because they have hard and sinful hearts. A bit second, verse 23. We see that God judges hard-hearted sinners so slowly because he wants to display the riches of his glory to his people, like They're the objects of his mercy. These are the people that the God, as the great potter, has mercifully given soft and repentant hearts, hearts that have trusted in Christ. These are the people that God wants to see the full riches of his glory, not just the glory of his mercy shown to them, but the glory of his judgment shown to sinners. Why? Because in seeing God display his wrath and judgment against sinners, God knows that his people will gain a much greater, much deeper appreciation of what we've been saved from. And a much deeper appreciation of God's abundant grace and mercy to us. God is not unfair to judge people for their sinful, hard hearts. Well, finally, in verses 24 to 29, God's word has not failed because what he promised is happening. In verse 17, you remember, Paul said that the God raised Pharaoh up so that his name might be proclaimed where? In all the earth. In Genesis 12, verse 3, God said that he was going to bless Abraham. Why? So that ultimately, all peoples on the earth would be blessed. So from verse 24, it's really no surprise when Paul says that's exactly what's happening. In verse 24, God is calling his people not just from among the Jews, but from among the Gentiles too. The people of all the earth. Paul reiterates that in verses 25 and 26 by quoting from Hosea 2, verse 23, and Hosea 1, verse 10. The point being that God predicted that many Gentiles would be included in his people whom he loves. And that's what's happening, Paul says. So how can anyone possibly say that God's word has failed? And then in verses 27 to 29, Paul points out that God also predicted that many Israelites would not be included in true Israel. And right now, that's what's happening. Paul quotes from Isaiah 10, verses 22 and 23. You'll see that there. It says, Although the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. That's what in Isaiah's day, God predicted that only a remnant of the Israelites would be saved from his judgment. And Paul says that's what's happening right now, right? Well, with most Israelites rejecting Christ. Paul reinforces that by quoting Isaiah 1 verse 10 in verse 29. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. In his mercy, the Lord saved at least some of the Israelites from his judgment in Isaiah's day. And Paul says that's what God's doing today, saving at least some Israelites through their faith in Christ. But not many Israelites. At least not now, Paul says. Most of the Israelites are hard-hearted to the gospel, and so they remain under God's judgment, just as they were in Isaiah's day. So you see the pattern, right? God hardened Pharaoh so that the world might see the glory of his name. So also Paul says God has hardened most of the Israelites, at least for now and so that the nations of the world might come to faith in Christ and see the glory of God's name. That's the wonder of God's plans. Of what is it that makes someone a Christian? Paul says it's God. In his sovereign mercy, God makes people Christians. He makes Christians wherever and whenever he wants you might say, well, what about the choice I made to follow Jesus? But oh, I'm not doubting that you made that choice at all. But I am saying that you only made that point that, that choice, right? You only chose God because God chose you first. where does the rubber hit the road with this? For, oh, what are some of the implications of this idea that, that it's God who makes Christians wherever and whenever he wants? I'll just briefly mention two implications. The first is, that if you're a Christian and you understand this idea, that God made you a Christian by his choice, and then that should make you very humble. Right? Because you know that you've done absolutely nothing to save yourself. Right? It's all God's work. That's incredibly humbling. But this idea should also give you a real sense of security as a Christian. Why? But Because you know that you're saved primarily because of God's choice, not your choice. So that means that you can be assured that even when you feel like you might let go of God, you might stop choosing him, you know that God will never let go of you because he's chosen you. And he's chosen you so that he can prepare you in advance for glory. Brothers and sisters, God's word has not failed because he's keeping his word by making Christians wherever and whenever he wants. Let's pray. Oh, our gracious Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for your sovereign choice that in your abundant grace and mercy, you don't give us all but what we deserve. Uh, but you mercifully save some. You save many. Uh, you save many of us. Uh, we praise you, Father, for your grace to us. We praise you that no person is beyond your sovereign mercy. Uh, and we pray that you would save many uh, in this season for the glory of our Lord Jesus. Amen.